Ventura Boulevard And all the bad boys Are standing in the shadows And the good girls Are home with broken hearts Hetzel, you've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. And today I'm so happy to have Nancy Pearl here in the studio. Nancy, welcome to the program. Thank you, T. It's great to be here and to hear Meatloaf. <laughs> Thanks for picking the songs for today's show. So, um, Nancy, uh, uh, before we get to I'll read your bio from George and Lizzie, because the, the, the occasion of this um, happy this happy occasion is because George and Lizzie, your novel, is out and you're in town. Yes. Um, and tomorrow you'll be doing an event at Rackham, um, the, S, the SI Symposium, actually, um, School of Information. It's a fireside chat with Nancy Pearl at 10 a.m. And this will be... Um, tomorrow October 6th at Rackham yes um so come one come all right absolutely Nancy? but today we're gonna we're gonna 
I don't know. Well, we we don't have a fireside, but That's okay. it's a bit we warm can, today anyway, isn't it? <laughs> we can still chat. So why, why did you choose Meatloaf like to kick us off? Well, because I was thinking of what songs Lizzie particularly, um, who is the main character, the main female character in, in the novel George and Lizzie, um, what songs she would like. And, and Lizzie... Lizzie is, it's not an autobiographical novel, so Lizzie and I do not share everything, but we do share some kind of superficial um, aspects of our, of our personalities, and um, we both love poetry. Um, just coincidentally, we both love the same four Poets, especially, just, just coincidentally. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. So Edna St. Vincent Millay yes. is one of your favorites. Edna St. Vincent Millay and A.E. Hausman. Yeah. Um, and then Philip Larkin, who, who I also really love. And then... I had to put in Dorothy Parker because Lizzie insisted on Dorothy Parker. Well, because that is actually like Lizzie has a bit of a, a, a wit, a sharp tongue, yes, some sarcasm. Exactly, exactly. There's one line in in George and Lizzie where um, George says something about Lizzie does well with sarcasm, or or she loves sarcasm. It's yeah. one of the things he loves about her. Yes, it, yes, it is one of the things he loves about her. So, so, and so, Lizzie listens to Meatloaf. She listens to Meatloaf, and and what, and she and I both really like um, songs that have good lyrics. And 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 one of the one of the things that I've always thought is that so many country music songs are sort of, um, you know, some of those very lyrical pop songs like Meatloaf. Uh, would really make wonderful novels if you, it, it, I mean there you have a plot in in those kinds of songs and Nancy Griffith another singer who we'll hear throughout the the hour um, does that as well mm. just great songs so maybe I is this a future project that you have on deck I, um well I have to wait for the characters to come to me I mean I w- I know you're a poet, and I wrote poetry when I was um, in high school and college, and always thought of myself as as a writer and as a poet. And then in my thirties, the lines stopped coming as poetry, and they would come as prose, which was so interesting because it was so clear that there was a difference. Um, so a line came to me, uh, which was, um, my mother talked to us all of the time. And that's not a line of poetry. I, I, I don't, I challenge anyone to put that into a, make that a poem. But and oh, here right. I am. Well, we've got here Steph behind are. the glass. Right. Steph, you had a right. pencil and paper there. Right. <laughs> Any listeners out there? Yeah, Nancy, you want to get the line Absolutely. again? <laughs> right. But I ended up, it seemed to me to be, the first line of a short story, which I then wrote, and they and that short story was published in um, Red Book magazine at a time when Red Book was really, really publishing good fiction. Um, I mean, I haven't looked at a Red Book magazine in years, so I don't know what they're doing now. But this was way, way, way back in 1980, and Bobby Ann Mason's one of her short stories was in Red Book, the same issue. So I was in very good company. But my my um, the editor at Red Book loved that short story, which ended up being called The Ride to School. And she said, "Oh, send us all your stories." And so I would write a story, and I would send it to her and she would say oh it's so well written but it's way too depressing for our readers and i and and that was a time um, when I was living in Oklahoma and it was not a very happy time for me and i was depressed and there was really no way that i could ever have written a, a, a funny or a happy story and um and did, I don't know how we got on this. Well, did topic. you did you think of did you think of sending the stories elsewhere too? I didn't. I, you know, I think um, I think I think I think that that would have t- been taking myself too seriously for what I thought I I deserved or something something not not. Something way psychological that right. I wasn't doing, and and I had and I had. I understand. Sm- I mean, yeah. it's wacky, but I because I but I also definitely understand. Yeah, what you I mean. think that writers would can understand that, and the and then lines would not 
they just would not be there as poetry. And I have one poem from way back then that I've never been able to finish because I cannot, I can't, it doesn't, my mind doesn't think that way or it doesn't produce that way. Hmm. So it's very strange. Do you, it's that poem, is it something that's, you carry with you? Like, I is do. It somewhere where you... I do, and I think about it. Um, I mean, I go through, I think, long periods when I haven't thought about it, but then something will remind me of it. And and it, it just begins, um, is that okay? So it begins, um, if a vision-daunting cloud should shift, drawn to some sky less strictly blue, I would not need my future red in coffee cups, and then it just sort of devolves more into prose on an island somewhere off the coast of Maine. But I have a wonderful last line for that poem, too, which is, um, uh, so in, in my mind, the poem is her listening to what the fortune teller is telling her. And the fortune teller ends by saying, um, he says, he, he says, I see a landlocked life as someone's mother and someone's wife. And, but at the middle part, I cannot, I've never been able to come to grips with. So, gosh, I haven't really t- ever talked about that poem. Oh, thank you for... Oh, you're you, welcome. Thank, and, it's, and it's so beautiful that you actually literally carry it with you. Yeah. It's in you. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that's what, I mean, I, I don't you think that's what literature, when it, something means as much to, to us as the, the stuff that we write or the stuff for me, especially, I would say that I read, you know, it just becomes part of us and, and we do carry it with us. It's always there and frequently because I've been such a reader my whole life, I, I, I find myself looking at the world through, through, the, through the books that I've read. And when did you, so you said a reader your whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, could what, when, give us an image of Nancy as, as a, a little girl. As a little girl. <laughs> yeah, so Nancy as a little girl um, was growing up in a lower middle class, not very happy family in Detroit, and feeling all the time that um, that the safest place to be and the most wonderful place to be was at the public library, and so I would go to the on library. I, I, the, no, not the big one on oh, no. Woodward. Oh, oh, oh. My my branch library on Oakman Boulevard. It, it was called the Parkman Branch Library, and I would go there every day. I would ride my my bike when I got old enough to do that. By it was a Huffy bicycle, <laughs> and we brilliant. And it, yeah, right. And it called Charger was my bike's name because I even back then loved names. Um, loved thinking about names. And um, it was those librarians, those wonderful, wonderful children's librarians, um, particularly a woman named Frances Whitehead, Miss Frances Whitehead, um, who really gave me that gift of books and the love of reading. So, so Frances Whitehead, she noticed you coming in. I think, And she, yeah. would she give you books to read or she, would she make sure there was a place for you to sit or keep an eye? All of those things. Yeah. But what when, when she met me, I must have been about eight. And I would, all I read at that time, as many eight-year-old girls do growing up in the city, never seeing a horse in person, was just to read horse and dog books. Misty of Shinkotique. Misty of Shinkotique, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And that was one of the books that I, I, I think I owned three books as, as a child. And one of those books was Misty of Shinko Teague, which I actually had met Marguerite Henry. They used to have a book fair in Detroit for school kids. And she was there and I got my, my Misty of Shinko Teague signed. So, but Miss Whitehead would say to me, Nancy, we just got a new horse book in. Do you want to be the first person in the library to read this book. And I would say, I mean, who in their right mind would not say yes? I said, yes. And I would, 
hold out my hand and she would say, oh, but wait, before you read this, I want you to read. And then she'd give me like Mary Poppins or The Hobbit or The Wind in the Willows or um, Greyfriars, Bobby. I mean, all of these wonderful, she was Canadian, and all of these wonderful British children's books that she bought for the library. Um, and, And that way, I kept reading all my horse and dog books, but little by little, she she weaned me away from those exclusively and, and just gave me the library. But if we went today, T, if we drove into Detroit and went to the, the uh, Parkland Branch Library, which I understand is really much, much changed from when I was there uh, um, as a kid, I could take you to the shelf where the horse and dog books were because at that time they pulled them out of the fiction section. They were their own, their own their special own section. section. Because of you? Oh, I don't know, just because of me. I think everybody at that time loved <laughs> loved horse books, but they don't do that anymore. And dog books. And dog Plugs books. For oh, dog books. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> Nancy, we'll we'll take a short break and then we'll come back. Okay. And then will you read something I from George and to. Lizzie for us? I would love to. Today on the program, Nancy Pearl is here. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Steph behind the glass and we've got Joe as a studio audience. We'll be right back. <laughs> It was raining hard in Frisco I needed one more fare to make my night A lady up ahead waved to flag me down She got in at the light Oh, where you going to, my lady blue? It's a shame you ruined your gown in the rain she just looked out the window She said, 16 parks, I think Something about her was familiar I could swear I'd seen her face before But she said, I'm sure you're mistaken And she didn't say anything more It took a while, but she looked in the mirror Then she glanced at the license for my name Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers, and today... Nancy Pearl is here in the studio. Her novel on the table with us, George and Lizzie. Um, And now I'll read the short bio in the back of the book. Nancy Pearl speaks about the pleasures of reading at library conferences and at the meetings of literacy organizations and community groups throughout the world. She comments on books regularly on KUOW-FM in Seattle, on KWGS in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and on Wisconsin Public Radio. She also hosts a monthly television show, Book Lust, with Nancy Pearl. Born and raised in Detroit, she received a master's degree in library science from the University of Michigan, go blue, and a master's in history from Oklahoma State University. Among her many honors are the Librarian of the Year Award from Library Journal, and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association. Nancy lives in Seattle with her husband, Joe. Um, Nancy, thanks so much for coming to talk oh, today. I my, my gosh, totally my pleasure. <laughs> well, I, you know, I used to live in Seattle, so I, was, I used to listen to you on the radio. <laughs> and then I was so excited to see that you have book lust on the the. The television right. channel too. Yes. Um, how did how did that happen? Um, well, when I finished, um, when I decided that it was time to leave the library, leave my my my, my last job at the library, I thought, yeah, you know, it's really time to go. And I was doing a lot of um, doing staff development workshops around the world, actually. But um, uh, I got a call from the local cable channel, the government, the Seattle City cable channel saying we want to do more arts programming what would you think about doing a monthly show of interviewing authors and i thought and this was in 2004 and it's so for the last like 13 years i've been interviewing authors and you know in seattle we're so fortunate that 
a lot of authors come Book through City. and then yeah. yeah and then of course there are a lot of authors who are living there so i've had the opportunity uh, and the pleasure of interviewing many great writers wow yeah. since 2004 yes it's a big archive and people can access it, right? They Online, can access, yes. The, and if um, they, you can if you just Google Seattle Channel Nancy Pearl, you that's should what get I did. That's yeah, okay. at least the most recent ones. Um, some they've archived, and I'm not. I think that would have to go through me, and I would have to ask them to un- to take it out of the archive and remount it. But that must be a qu- quite an impressive archive. Well, it's time. so interesting because. Um, I've been able to, you know, I've interviewed a lot of um, many different genres, uh, writers of many different genres. And I was teaching also at the University of Michigan at the... um, at the what at the information school, which was the library school, and I teach a course in um, readers what we call readers advisory in the library world, and what booksellers call hand selling. But basically, how to recommend books to somebody, how how through talking to them, you can help them find their next good book, and I was also then teaching another course in in um, in genres which I am not fond of. And I always wanted to call it deconstructing genres because I just think it does, it does readers a disservice to pull out mysteries, um, pull out science fiction, pull out romances, pull out Westerns from the, from the whole world of fiction. And I think in many ways, what genres do is ghettoize, um, put a sort of a stamp of, oh, this is a kind of book that is not, literature. Um, And so by interviewing science fiction writers, for example, I get to talk about what that means to them and, and how we can get readers who think they don't like, for example, science fiction, to step a little bit out of that, their comfort zone and try a historical science fiction novel, for example. Right. So... So that's a great mission to have. It, I think. I Nancy. think. Thank you. I think so too. But most of my missions are losing missions. <laughs> kind of on the losing side of most of my missions. What do you mean? Well, I, I think that um, I, I fear, I, I, from my own experience, and I am addicted to Twitter. I, I think that. That kind of all that social media really does change our brain structure and make it much harder to read um, longer narratives. I think people are finding it more difficult to become engaged in a book, for example, because they're so used to this kind of click and switch, click and switch, which I think. Which I don't know what to do about. And do you see this across like uh, demographics, like age? Groups? I do. I, I do. Um, I, I you know I think that that people my it's it's not as usual for people my age to be as addicted to Twitter as I am. But I have to say, my oldest granddaughter was in a social studies class at her school, and the teacher was saying, "Oh, you know, probably your grandparents aren't." You don't know very much about social media. And she raised her hand and she said, she said, my grandmother was the first person in our family to get an iPhone. And she has 12,000 followers on Twitter. And so, and so they all said, well, who's your grandmother? Um, but um, so I, but I, but I do see even with my own reading um, that I'm much it's much harder to convince myself. I'm not proud of this at all. That it's much harder to convince myself to read um, a, a big novel, which I used to love. Like go go to yeah. yeah. Can you remember the last big novel? You read? Oh, um, oh, the last big novel. I mean, I love big novels, and there's a wonderful quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, there's no novel big enough and no cup of tea, there's no novel long enough and no cup of tea big enough to suit me, you know, (laughs) that he just wants more and more and more. I think that's the way he said it. Um, 
you know, a novel like, um, oh gosh, I mean, mostly now I'm thinking I have to say if a novel is 400 pages, like does any book have to be 400 pages? I know you're going to get like hate mail from people saying, <laughs> yes, it does well, have then, to be 400 that, Wow, pages. bring it on. That would be, yeah, I'm not sure that we've had hate mail before, <laughs> oh, well, but there's always, <laughs> uh, well, forward it to me. I'll try to deal with it. <laughs> well, so why, why did you decide to, to write, write a novel. novel? Because we talked a little bit about the progression from poems right, to short right. stories. So instead of a line, what came to me were these two characters, George and Lizzie. And they they appeared in my head one night when I was trying to fall asleep. And I knew their names. I knew that they met at a bowling alley in Ann Arbor. And that's on all Washtenaw. I knew. On Washtenaw, way out on Washtenaw. And I... I I loved them. I loved thinking about them. And from that day, for years, I just would tell myself stories about them before I went to sleep. I wasn't, I didn't write anything down. I just, I, I, it just got to the point where I, I was, I, I learned everything about them. I mean, they were really real to me, so real to me. And I loved, I just loved spending time with them. And telling their story but the story but I was only telling it to myself and then I I went through a period as as often happens when I couldn't find anything to read anything that met you know we all have these kind of inchoate needs to find the right book and you and you know you'll know it when you start reading it but you haven't found it, and it's very frustrating. And that happens to me very frequently. And I was going through one of those grumpy periods where I say, you know, well, why can't Ann Tyler write faster? And, you know, where's Lori Colwyn? How come she had to die when she was so young? And all of that. Or like Iris Murdoch, where's where's Iris Murdoch in her middle age, you know, middle period before she she developed Alzheimer's? All of those things. And And finally, and then I thought... Well, I have a book. I have a book in my head that's exactly the kind of book that I love to read. I it's very character driven. There's humor because even in the stories I told there was to myself, there was humor and I thought here's all these here's all these people that you know this these these this wonderful young couple and so why did don't you, I write it down? Did you so? Did you at that moment when you had that realization? Did you sit down and did you start drafting yes, yeah. or what? Well, I would no. What happened was that I sat down and I, it would be so much fun to say that I, you know, sharpened my quill pen and dipped it in, in <laughs> you know, in, a, in ink and and put it on parchment. And sunshine but, came and sunshine, through the, right, the window yeah, exactly. to shine upon the page. Exactly. But in fact, I sat at my dining room table and opened up my um, a MacBook Pro and started typing how they met, which is, in fact, the first section in, in, in George and Lizzie. And I didn't outline... I by the time I started putting everything down, it was more like I was debriefing. It was more like it was all in my head, and I was just getting it down on paper, not on paper as it were. Um, and the hardest part, which you as a poet will appreciate, the hardest part was that lines would sound perfect in my head they would be just so so right and then I would get them down on the computer and I would look at them and I would say that's a terrible line I mean it just it's so it just doesn't match what was in my head and so the hardest part for me I never had to think about what was going to happen next. I never had to make any decisions about plot or or, or um, big decisions about time frames or really anything. The hardest part for me was getting those words down in a way that I thought was good. And I was and I'm so critical and extra specially critical from of myself. 
And so would you read them? Would you read this, the sentences out loud or how would... Mostly I would read them to myself. Um, I think if I ever wrote another novel, I would do more reading out loud. But it was mostly reading to myself and just fighting with every single, every single sentence I, I would fight with. So um, an innocuous sentence like, um, George took Lizzie's arm, I would type that in. And then I would say, and I would look at it, and I would say, well, where did he take it? Like, what did he do with it after he had it? Does Lizzie just have one arm now? I mean, questions that no reader looking at that sentence would ever, would, it would ever occur to them to ask. But was it useful to you as the writer, or did it no, slow it was, you down? It, it, I think it definitely slowed me down, but I think that I couldn't have written the book any other way, that, 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 that that's what needed to be done, was that kind of struggling with the words. And I, and I really think that was part of why poetry was so important to, I mean, because that's how I wrote poetry. I worried about every, yeah, very careful. And I worried about every word and every, um, the rhythm of all of that. And, and, and so when George and Lizzie was when I wrote the last section, and I didn't write in chronological order. I just wrote what was foremost in my mind that time, every time I sat down at the computer. Um, when I finished it, I, I, it didn't even need, it didn't need revision in the sense that normally I think you would go back and you would have a first draft and then you would go back and rewrite it and rewrite it. It didn't need that. I mean, basically, what's here is what was always there with some added sections that my editor encouraged me to write because things were very clear in my mind. But maybe some bridges. Some bridges, exactly. Or some minor characters that she thought we needed to emphasize like, more. So so the writing process was... Um, I mean, in in so many ways, it was just it was a delight. I have to say, and 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 in many ways, that that initial fighting with every word felt like I was in, you know, Chinese communist China in those during the Cultural Revolution in those sort of self criticism sessions, <laughs> you know, like this is terrible, this was terrible, but then. And then, and yet here it is. And yes, a fight and a delight. And a, yes. We're going to take a short break and Great. then we'll be back okay. um, to hear more, to talk more with Nancy Pearl today on the program. Her novel, George and Lizzie. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Nancy Pearl is here in the studio. Her novel, George and Lizzie. 
And we've been promising to hear a bit of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe now's the time before we get talking. <laughs> okay. So this is a section um, called Why George Loves Lizzie. And um, I have to say that um, this is a somewhat unusual novel because sections of it are lists and the characters... Um, development, the character development in the novel, often you learn about the characters through the various lists that they are, that they, that George makes or that Lizzie has made. So this is why George loves Lizzie. And because some of it's more the interiority yes. of the character. Yes. But... Yeah. And the novel is written in um, what's, what's known as a close third person. So we're only really in the minds and the experiences of George and Lizzie, um, with one small exception. But here's why George loves Lizzie. Number one, her smile. When Lizzie smiles, it's pretty impossible not to smile back. George has seen evidence of this with trained conductors, hitherto grumpy salespeople, and little kids. Even when he is most frustrated with her, see number two below, her smile can almost always make everything better, especially now that he's fixed that incisor. Number two, he's never bored by Lizzie. Exasperated, yes, quite often. Very exasperated, yes. There were definitely times when Lizzie's sadness and pessimism... Oh, very exasperated, yes, more than just occasionally. Extremely exasperated, yes. There were definitely times when Lizzie's sadness and pessimism drove George bonkers, when he knew a life without her would be easier. But all she had to do was smile, see number one, above, or laugh appreciatively at one of his puns, see number three, below, and he was back in love with her. Did this make him weak or stupid or what? George didn't know. Number three. Her sense of humor. Lizzie is wonderful with sarcasm and wordplay. She shares his love of a good pun. But she's a terrible joke teller because she usually forgets the telling detail that makes the joke a joke. Here's where George comes in, since he always remembers that detail perfectly. Number four, her intelligence. George had known smart women before he met Lizzie, Julia Drasnan for one, and his mother for another, but he soon realized that Lizzie was probably the smartest woman he'd ever met. George thought of himself as being quite intelligent. He'd, quite intelligent. he'd always gotten high scores on standardized tests, but he'd never been quick. He liked to read books slowly and carefully. He was virtually incapable of skimming, with frequent pauses to think about what he had just read. Lizzie devoured books, one after another, like a chain smoker with her cigarettes. She was like a lightning streak across the sky, picking up and remembering odd and interesting facts about whatever interested her, and a lot did. George would never call Lizzie a deep thinker, but boy, she was the ideal trivial pursuit or jeopardy partner. George was frequently surprised at what Lizzie knew or didn't know. Perfectly ordinary facts, like what latitude meant, were beyond her, while the sort of minuscule details of someone's life, the name of Albert Einstein's first wife, it was Maleva Einstein Marich, George learned from Lizzie, were on the tip of her tongue. Number four her breasts. As a late 20th century well-educated male, when fully aware of the crimes the patriarchy had committed on the opposite sex, George knew that much more went into loving someone than their physical attributes. But it has to be said that he loved Lizzie's breasts. Their size and shape fit the palm of his hand perfectly. Number five, her neediness. Lizzie needed George in ways that no one else ever had or he believed ever would. She needed him to do the ordinary things that anyone could have done, including Lizzie, if she'd been inclined to try harder, unscrew recalcitrant jars, climb a ladder to change the light bulb on the side of the house, slice vegetables with their mandolin, and George enjoyed the feeling of being needed. More significantly, Lizzie, in George's view, needed rescuing from her own sadness, and George was convinced that he was the only person in the world who could do so. 
I love that section actually. Oh, thanks for reading it, Nancy. Why? What? Why is it? What is it about? Thanks for well, choosing to read that section. I think us. that um, I think that it just I think that it encapsulates both Lizzie and George because I I think that that Lizzie is you know they're very very different from one another and and I think that when I was when they first came into my head and all those years that I was thinking about them and not writing about them, but just thinking and telling myself stories about them, I think I was, I think I was trying to figure out what it meant when two people who were, who were in a relationship really moved through the world in very different ways. Because Lizzie is... Well, let's start with George. George is um, really, as Lizzie would say, a pathological optimist. George believes that there are no tragedies in the world, that, that, that everything that happens is an opportunity for growth. And Lizzie, on the other hand, is because of who her parents were, and because of how she grew up feeling so unloved by her parents, Lizzie is prickly and she's difficult and she doesn't believe that, that she deserves to be loved. And Lizzie is, as George accuses her of being, a pathological pessimist. And so when Lizzie... Um, when Lizzie, when you would say to Lizzie that question that people always ask, and this actually isn't in the book, but if you said to Lizzie, well, is that glass half empty or half full? Lizzie would would really look at you with scorn. I mean, she would just give you this look like, are you insane? She would say, of that glass is totally empty, and you are just imagining whatever water there is in it. And here they are, so different from one another, and yet, as we as we know from the first section of the book, they're going to be together. And and how 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 does that work? And I think in in that why George loves Lizzie, um, you get a sense of that. You get a sense of of why George, of Lizzie's neediness, and yet, as as we see in the book, Lizzie's really resistance to George's love and, and all of that. Nancy, when you were having those, those years where you were thinking about this before you went to sleep and, at night and these characters would come to you, like, what do you think, like, because it doesn't seem like it was a game to go to sleep. What, what do you think you were figuring out because was it is it was it a way to try to figure something out to find something out yeah that's a wonderful question and I I I mean the easy answer is to to for me to say no no it was just a game I mean it was just a way of relaxing by telling myself these stories but even though the novel uh isn't autobiographical. I, I, I said that already, but I, I want to emphasize it. It is not autobiographical. Lizzie is not me, and I am not Lizzie. Um, and, and, and my husband Joe is not George, and George is not my husband Joe. Um, and certainly Lizzie's parents are not my parents. And um, among many other differences between us. But still, at the same time, um, I think I've always been interested in people and how people move through the world and their experience of the world. And one of the things that I most enjoy is just getting to know people, to just sit down and hearing who they are, learning who they are. And so I think that there wasn't this overriding question or weren't questions that I was trying to answer with George and Lizzie. I think I was just so interested in exploring who they were. They they were the most interesting people to me for so long. And so now, like, do they, when, once you wrote it down, did they, did you stop thinking about their story? Because that's not yeah. how the book ends. No, no. And you know, um, 
like other character-driven novels, which George and Lizzie is, there's a really, this would be a good discussion, a good book, a good choice for a book discussion, because there are still unanswered questions at the end of the book. Many, many of the questions are answered, but there still are questions that I wonder about. Um, But when I think about the characters now, I think that their story, for me, their George and Lizzie's story is is really done. I think, um, but the people who I've been thinking about um, are are a couple minor characters in the book that I that I think a lot about, and one of them is Maverick. Maverick is Lizzie's boyfriend. Early on, <laughs> yes, early on, Maverick is Lizzie's boyfriend in her junior year of high school. His father um, was a uh, a football player at U of M. And um, and and was in uh, played for the New Orleans Saints was drafted by the New Orleans Saints during a period in the in the life of the New York New Orleans Saints team when they were doing horribly and people were wearing paper bags at their games and were called you know they called themselves the Aints. Um, and then, and then, after his father left professional football, they moved back to Ann Arbor, and and her, his father went to work for Bump Elliott coaching the wide receivers. So, is this based on a real person? No, or, because it's so interesting to see you you say it. <laughs> I know it's like fact. I know fact by Nancy Pearl. I know, I know. That's what's so. I mean, I just, I just think that's so. I, I mean, that's what it seems Imagining to me. It. Uh, yes, Imagine. and um, and so Maverick is the oldest son. And he's good, but not great. His younger brother, Ranger, is great, but not but not outstanding. And so all the football hopes of the whole family are, are residing in the youngest brother, Colt. And all of these characters were born around 1970. So they are getting pretty close to age 50 now in 2017, 18, 19, 20. And I'm thinking, what is Maverick doing right now? And how does he feel about having been this great disappointment to his father? Let's take a short break and then we'll come back. (laughs) What is Maverick thinking right now? (laughs) Today on Living Writers, Nancy Pearl is here. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for so long now. Oh, you're a hard one, but I know that you got your reasons. These things that are pleasing you can hurt somehow welcome back you've got living writers today nancy pearl is here in the studio um so we were talking about the the imagined life of these characters right and how it becomes so real for the writer right and hopefully um, for the reader for the reader yeah. And and I have to say, T, the the book is set in primarily in Ann Arbor. George George is from George is from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Why did you choose Ann Arbor? It just seemed that that's where Lizzie was from. I mean, there was no choice ever in my mind. I you know, I've lived in Seattle the longest that I've lived anywhere, but I I never wanted it to be at the University of Washington, it was always in Ann Arbor, and um, Ann Arbor is where I, I f- uh, finished out my undergraduate degree and got a master's degree in library science here. And I America's met my husband, librarian, whatever folks. that means. I know. <laughs> yeah. what does, what? I don't know. One woman asked me at one of the readings. She said, 
what do you do as America's librarian? And it's, and it's not something someone can take away from no. you, right? Like no one else has ever become <laughs> right. it or has or, an action uh, figure, right, right? Right, that's true. They don't. It's no. just you, it do- right? It is. It's only right. you, I should say. It's it you, is. Nancy Pearl. Yes. Is that? Yeah. Do you have a bunch of those action figures? Well, I don't have. I no longer have a bunch, and they're not that that iteration is it has been out of production. Collector's for a long item time. is what you're saying. However, T. Breaking news here. There is going to be a new librarian action figure. I was redigitized, and <laughs> I I look, um, and it's wonderful. I look uh, like Wonder Woman. I look about 50 years younger, and I look uh, very much like Wonder Woman. I have a cape. And, I was just going to ask. And what I'm and fighting boots? against. Do you have boots? I believe I have boots. Nice. I think. What I'm fighting against is um, anti, anti-intellectualism and uh, and censorship, fighting against censorship. So it's, it is just, it's amazing, the packaging. So those are... Um, those are on the bounding main coming to the United States, and they should be available um, from Archie McPhee. And if so, if you go into the Archie McPhee um, uh, website, then you could pre-order, I believe, the librarian action figure. Oh, and it sounds like they'll be here in time uh, in, for the holidays. In time for the holidays, <laughs> right? They're not dumb. They're not dumb. They know. Um, anyway, it's absolutely wonderful, and it's just a wonderful tribute to librarians, and it's a hoot. And to you, your life's well, work, and as you and you. you and what's ahead? Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, you know what? We were talking about right. Ann Arbor and how right. you also met oh, your husband, Joe, I here. Did, and I, didn't I did. To... Yes. I, so I met my husband, Joe, here. And we, um, you know, were married when we were both students here. And but it but the Ann Arbor in the book is not I mean, I picked and chose so so that Lizzie goes to Ann Arbor High. But Ann Arbor High um, was no longer in the location, the School of Social Work had taken it over by the time and our by the time Lizzie would have been there. So it's not so you can't follow um, y- y- you can't use this as a map, although it does. I think their first apartment, Lizzie and George's first apartment was on Knob Hill Place, which I think is where our first apartment was. So I did take all <laughs> of this stuff and Lizzie's parents, who are um, pretty pretty dreadful yes. to Lizzie, were our, our um, well, I guess now there were, were academic mm-hmm. psychologists at the University of Michigan in the psychology. They were in the psychology department, and they were stars of the department. They but, brought uh, in a lot of research money. So, so you based this, them on real people? No, I did not. <laughs> Again, I, I'm I a made them out of. I, I know. I made them. I made them up. They are behaviorists. Yes. And so they spend. Somebody their, should be studying them, though. <laughs> I know. Oh yes, they spend their time running rats in mate through mazes and writing academic articles about them. And the reason Lizzie is so unhappy is because they really never wanted a child, and they. And with Lizzie, as she describes in the book, they really treated her as though she were another one of their lab rats um, and not as a daughter to love. And um, it was interesting. I was interviewed once. uh, I was interviewed. um, The first interview I did for the book was with a woman who's an adjunct um, uh, teacher at Penn State who is a behaviorist. So she's in the psychology department there. And I said, well, were you offended by this portrayal of behaviorists in the book? And she said, she said, well, actually, no. She said, I could identify with those people. There are people just like them in my department. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that dear. was funny. So great. Yeah. great. That made for great, that great interview moment. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But. And, and also good to, to, well, you, cause it must feel good then to also know that you've created these real characters that resonate with your readers. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I do think that, um, I do think that different characters in the book resonate with different readers. I mean, I think it depends on who you are as a reader, because I was talking to somebody 
uh, recently, and she said, well, she thought that that it was Lizzie's parents who would be who would resonate the longest. That Riz, that Lizzie's parents were such she felt such three dimensional characters. Mm. So when she puts the book down, those that's are the characters she, she's yes. still thinking about. Yeah, how that's interesting. I thought that was very interesting because that's not who I would have who I would have thought <laughs> at all about um, because I'm so angry at them for the way they. They really mistreated Lizzie. And so, what's it? What was it like for you to write characters? Because it's a, it's it seems important to also have characters that you may be angry yes. at. And yeah. How, what um, was that like? Surprisingly, it was. I I mean, I knew because of Lizzie's unhappiness and prickliness that she needed to. Ha- she there had to be a reason for that, and that reason had to be her childhood, and that meant she had to have an unhappy home life. And then the question was, what kind of an unhappy home life? And I didn't want it to be, I didn't want Freudian stuff in there. And I didn't want sexual abuse or, you know, child abuse. I didn't want any of that. I I didn't want Lizzie to have to go through that. And then it, it just made a lot of sense. And I talked to my husband, Joe, about it, who is a psychologist, although not a behaviorist. And um, and and we talked about it. And it, it, he, we we both thought that would be what it was. Huh. At one time, I thought that they were going to be um, astronomers or mathematicians, but I couldn't, I couldn't get the coldness, enough coldness with that. So when you were back in the, the, the evenings of imagined yes. stories, what were you surprised when Jack wandered into the picture? I, oh, Jack. Oh, my gosh. Jack. All of the songs that we p- played throughout this show, those are all related to Jack and to the fact that Jack and Lizzie were madly in love for a, a quarter for three months and then something happens and he's no longer in her life and she never stops thinking about Jack and that's why she's she just thinks about those those songs all the time um, so Jack seemed perfectly I think I think probably everybody has a kind of jack in their life, one way or another. Somebody who, who, um, who has uh, hurt them, or 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 who wasn't the person who they thought they were, or something like that. And who you might wonder about. And who you wonder about all the time. Yeah. Ah <laughs> uh, well. Nancy, I've loved talking with you uh, today. Me as well. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for America's librarian and thank you and wonderful citizen and novelist. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Well, and Nancy, you you will say um, tomorrow you'll be at Rackham for the SI Symposium. Um, so Friday, October sixth, for the fireside chat at ten a.m. Yes, and then you're also heading to Virginia and then Cleveland. Yes, some, yes, some, to do some, some programs, date. and it's all on my website, which is just nancypearl.com. Wonderful. Well, Nancy, come back and talk anytime. Oh, I would love to. Maybe we can talk some book lust. I would love to. That would be fabulous. All right. Okay, everyone. Thanks for listening out there. Today on the program, it's been Nancy Pearl, her novel, George and Lizzie. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
I can't. 